Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How do you engage with culture? Are you aware of how culture is shaping your sensibilities about meaning, power, morality, religion, and aesthetics? Do you blindly reject everything in the culture so that you can remain separate from the world? Or do you blindly accept everything so that you remain relevant? My guest today is Dr. Justin Bailey of Dort University in Iowa. Today we're talking about his book, Interpreting Your World. Rather than accepting or rejecting culture, Professor Bailey advocates exegeting the culture and evaluating it in light of the gospel and the Christian worldview. Then we can better understand our own hearts and how culture is affecting us, as well as how to reach unbelievers with the gospel. Here now is episode 480, Interpreting Your World with Justin Bailey. Well, welcome to Restitutio, Justin Bailey. I'm so delighted to have you from Dort University in Iowa. Thanks for joining me in conversation today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be with you. So to begin with, I thought maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. You seem like the kind of person who, you I just have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but you seem like the kind of person who, who straddles the fence between theology and praxis, <laughs> that you, you really care about both of those. Yeah, uh, that's right. Myself being a pastor, I'm, I'm very much like in both worlds. I like the thinking, the life of the mind, but I'm just really enmeshed in real life as well. So share a little bit about yourself and your story so people can get to know you. Sure. Yeah. So I join you in that kind of wanting to do both the work of a pastor and the work of the theologian, which are overlapping but distinct. Uh, I was a pastor for over a decade during while I was doing my PhD. And the grass is always greener. You know, I think when I was a pastor, I wanted to do more academic type stuff. And then now that I'm an academic, I find the longing to to be more grounded in church ministry, which means I do quite a bit of pulpit supply, quite a bit of preaching. Um, but I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas City and I uh, come from a Filipino-American uh, mixed uh, sort of heritage. My father is Caucasian, my mom is Filipino, but I grew up in the Midwest and uh, then kind of went through evangelical institutions, grew up Baptist, went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School pastored for a while in a non-denominational context, also an immigrant context. So I was serving first in a Filipino church, English-speaking Filipino church, then also an English-speaking Korean, predominantly Korean church. Uh, so a lot of my ministry experience, at least in the early years, was very much in the immigrant church, a, very much a work of sort of integration, of trying to to inhabit multiple spaces, as I even do sort of in my my body. Like, what does it mean for me to be Filipino-American? And, and yet to have my deepest identity be that I'm Christian and wanting to integrate that together, you know, to bring together these important threads of meaning under the Lordship of Christ. So that's also kind of an explanation of my theological work. It's an attempt to do integration of all these different pieces of life, which we find in culture. Um, so I always say that my work is at the intersection of culture and theology and ministry. And so those are the sorts of classes I teach. I teach a lot of outward facing type classes like okay. Christianity and popular culture, 
gospel church and culture, Christian ethics classes that uh, relate to the way we engage the world. And that's what my writing does as well. Mm -hmm. um, my first book was called Reimagining Apologetics, a book about what an apologetic method would look like that took the imagination more seriously into account. And now this book that I've written uh, is a book about, um, yeah, engaging theology and culture. Okay. So the, the book is called Interpreting Your World, uh, Five Lenses for Engaging Theology and Culture, published by Baker Academic. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, I was thinking maybe you could just tell a little bit about your own engagement with you, you tell a little story in the beginning and throwing the CDs into the river. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the motivation for writing this book and what you're sure. hoping to accomplish here. Yeah, the story that I tell at the beginning is of a student uh, in my youth ministry who came to Christ. And as part of his conversion, he felt strongly that he needed to destroy his secular music. Again, like, I don't know where he got this idea. Um, there's obviously precedent for it. Like he wouldn't have been the first person or the last person to do that. It's kind of always funny to hear whenever I share this with people, they have similar stories. Like, even my my dad like told me a story he'd never told me before about the records that he broke or that he destroyed, you know, when he sort of became serious in his faith. And I sort of reflect on that experience where I sort of stood by with him and I was really happy and I understood his desire to make some sort of decisive decisive break with, quote unquote, his past. Um, and yet it didn't sit well with me because it, it felt like it seemed to him like he was needing to replace everything in his former life with something else. And so he still had to live a cultural life. He still had to make choices about music and things like that. But I wondered whether there was another way to think about our relationship with culture besides replacement. At the same time, really understanding that desire to do that and that there are times in our discipleship where taking drastic measures uh, are very much warranted. And so I wrote this book in some ways as an exploration in a thicker approach to culture than just one in which faith replaces culture. So you have all these things that culture tells you, and then you have all these things that scripture tells you. And now the only reason why you would be interested in this would be so that you could replace it with this, which again, there are times when that is almost exactly what happens. Uh, but that's probably not a complete account of the way that theology and culture interact, uh, especially in the way that Christ comes to redeem those things that have been damaged by the fall. Um, so that those things that are truly human will be healed and not replaced. Uh, and so that's what um, is kind of driving it. That's the theology that's driving it, is the theology of redemption, uh, wanting to listen and, and ask questions before just kind of doing an act of iconoclasm where we destroy CDs or, well, yeah, we don't even have CDs anymore. But whatever the you know medium of, it wouldn't be as dramatic now. You just drag everything into the trash can, I guess. But yeah, we're, that kind of more adversarial uh, approach to cultural engagement is part of our um, engagement, but not the whole of our engagement. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah, I think of my own ministry. I've been in pastoral ministry for 17 years so far, and I've definitely seen two extremes. On the one hand, you've got the people who fully embrace separation from the world, and like we were just talking about, and for the sake of holiness, disengage from the culture as much as possible. You talk about the culture, right, and the right. world, and yeah. uh, what was it? Uh, the devil, the the trio there, the flesh, <laughs> the world, the the devil. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got the people who so inhabit the culture, they're super relatable to unbelievers, but they also 
indulge mm-hmm. in the sinful behaviors of the world to such a degree they lose their witness, right? Yeah. So uh, how, how can your book help people figure out that balance a little bit? That's that's a great question. And I always notice it in my students whenever um, I teach at a Christian university and whenever we're talking about popular culture, it's usually those are the two modes that they're comfortable in. They can either criticize everything so they know, okay, these are all the ways that this falls short of the Christian worldview. They're pretty good at doing that. They think that's what I want. Um, and then they, at the same time, though, they get lost in it, right? You know, they even the fact that they can critique it might not mean that they stop watching it, right? Uh, and so it's almost like I'm either going to just not turn off my brain and be amused by this thing, or I'm going to going to just intellectually criticize it. And I don't actually think about the stories that are being told that have taken root in my imagination. And so that's kind of the larger picture that I'm trying to get into is this fact that if we think about culture in terms of the way that culture functions for us, so not so much just the content of cultural artifacts, but the way what it's doing to us or how culture is um, cultivating us, uh, so to speak, uh, then we can say that all of us are already, always already engaged in conversations about what is most real and what matters most. Well, that's a pretty good description for theology, actually. Uh, So culture is having these theological conversations. And so we want to listen first, even to get a sense of, well, what is the theology that I'm actually imbibing, this implicit theology that I'm absorbing from culture, from cultural artifacts? Most of us probably get most of our theology from culture. And then to then do the move of interrogation to say, now, what is theology for? How does theology now both correct, complete, critique, but then also position me to engage culture in in a new way. And so there is first a movement that is, I think, more hospitable, uh, more curious, I guess, even to say, what is it about this cultural artifact that has made it go viral, so to speak? Like, why is this a thing? You know, to to be curious about that. Uh, What's the story here? Like, what, where is the hope being found in here? And then a critical and discerning move of saying, okay, now how does this, uh, how does the gospel come in and critique this or complete it or correct it? How does it give it a new direction or new meaning? If there's something good here, how does it do that? If there's something that's idolatrous here, how does it call out the idolatry? And yet at the same time, redirect our attention to something that is actually worth our love, worth our attention. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, you talk about the concept of Christianity as a virus. And it's yeah. a little ironic because you were writing this book during COVID. That's right. <laughs> and, and you're trying to use viruses like a positive. Yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, what what were you doing there, getting across in that analogy, though? Yeah, for virus? sure. And so I was trained to engage culture from someone who's very adept, Kevin Van Hooser, a the- theology professor at, at TEDS. And he taught me uh, to interact with culture as a text. That's sort of his area is hermeneutics. And he said, we should be considering these as cultural texts, a world and work of meaning uh, in which we sort of, something is happening to us. As we as we read a text, something is happening to us as we consume culture. And I really like that. And I, I still find it incredibly helpful. But I thought that the way that analogy is limited is that a text is sort of discrete for me. Like I can I can hold a text in my hand and it's, I can move it over here. And it's almost like I'm here, culture is here, and I now go over into culture. And it doesn't quite capture the fact that we are already in culture. We are immersed in it already. And I wanted a, a metaphor that would capture how culture is more contagious and is more caught than taught. 
And so because we were in the midst of COVID, you know, this, this is a metaphor that came pretty easily and a metaphor that I think resonated with a lot of people. If we think about what discernment really is, it's like you have an immune system that keeps certain things out and lets certain things in. Now, if you are immunocompromised, it lets the wrong things in and keeps the wrong things out. And it's possible for us to be immunocompromised from a discipleship perspective too, right? Where we're taking in things that are actually toxic to us, that are actually destroying us. And so I, I really like this metaphor of because I felt like it captured this sense that it kind of gets inside our hearts, it gets inside our, our veins and shifts our even our sense of what is healthy, what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. And then I shifted then to talking about Christianity as a virus, which C.S. Lewis did as well in Mere Christianity. He talks about the good infection of the gospel. And if we get close to Christ, we'll catch it from him. And so to say in the same way, it's not just that we take the gospel now and we bring it over here into like the, the, the more time we spend with the gospel or the more time we spend with Christ, that also is contagious. And I'm hoping to say whatever context we're in, the gospel is not something fragile, but something that's powerful that can actually transform things, can transform cultural immune systems, so to speak. And indeed, that's what's supposed to happen. So you've got these five main points around which you uh, structure the book, you've got meaning and power and aesthetics and so on. Uh, So I was thinking we could just go through those and we'll just see how our time goes. Uh, But let's start with meaning. Uh, What what does our culture say about meaning? How do we find meaning in our culture today? Yeah, so meaning is the first lens because I think it's the most intuitive. Uh, In some ways, it's the most elusive too, though, because you're sort of like, well, what does meaning mean? What does it mean when I say that something is meaningful. What I mean is that I feel a sense of resonance and connection with whatever whatever it is. So you sort of think about us walking through the world and certain things just grab our attention that other, and other things don't. Or even, you know, you're surfing the internet and certain things grab your attention and other things don't. There's just this immediate connection that you feel. Well, this is something about like this cultural immune system that certain pieces of culture intuitively tend to fit in our worldview, our vision of what the world is like and our connection to it. And certain things are antithetical or feel antithetical. And so we have not a rational response to those things. We have an emotional response. We have an immune system response. You know, you sneeze, you try to get it out. You know, you're not entertaining it, right, as a serious option. Meaning is the sense of, of being secure, of being stable, and I would sort of narrate this German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, where he talks about uh, history as the competition of immune system bubbles, um, you know, which is sort of him playing with Marx's idea of history as class struggle. He says, no, it's a struggle between immune systems, which by which he means are these self-contained systems of meaning that begin to collide with each other. Like when you realize that somebody else's system of meaning is antithetical to yours, uh, or the things that you hold most dear are the things that other people are allergic to. Uh, that's a problem. That's what I'm trying to get at again with, with this whole idea of, of immune systems and meaning. It's the sense that we have as we go through the world that certain things connect with it and certain things don't. And I'm not making a value judgment necessarily there. I'm just saying that the way that most of us come into culture and the reason why we even associate certain things with culture, you know, like if I if I go to my hometown and drive through the streets everything I see means something to me in a way that if you went to my hometown, it wouldn't mean anything to you. Or it would mean something to you, maybe like, oh, there's a Starbucks or, you know, you would know what those places are. 
but you wouldn't feel a sense of that there are these invisible cords of connection to this place. And that's what I'm trying to say as well, that if we sort of understand culture as the sense of a secure sense of meaning, of meaningfulness, which is the reason why when we have this breakdown, existential breakdown, it is the loss of meaning or the loss of secure meaning, at least. Uh, and so that's that first lens is, is uh, the meaning dimension of culture. Uh, wh whether something secures my sense of fit or threatens my sense of fit in the world. When it comes to the Christian view of meaning, you know, obviously that is found in the gospel. Maybe you could just talk about yeah. that a little bit. And I have not heard of that professor you had mentioned from TED's, uh, but your book definitely has that feel to it, like the idea of exegeting the culture. That's right. Uh, before we get to my earlier question, you heard of uh, David Foster Wallace and his famous oh, yeah. commencement speech. Yeah, right? this where is he water. says like, "How's there's a story about the fish, and it's like, well, how's the water, boys?" And they're yeah. like, "What is water?" Yeah, I think that's how a lot of us look at culture. We're like, "What do you mean? I don't have a culture. This is just mm. normal life. Like, we're just not self-aware. We're just like, this is this is normal." And what you're what you're asking us to do here is to sort of like take ourselves a step back. That, that's good. I think the only way that be, because it is the water we swim in, the only way we know the water we swim in is not the water that everyone swims in is when we encounter a different temperature of water, you know, maybe just to stay with that analogy. Yeah. Um, or when you encounter another culture or another or, or somebody who's been raised in another culture sort of begins to problematize, you know, so if you are in the dominant culture and somebody from the outside comes in and says, this is weird, you know, it's sort of like if you have a couch at your house that you've never really thought about till somebody comes is like that couch is so ugly you're like oh yeah it is ugly you know what i mean like all of us have like things like that yeah. in our culture that we've not examined because it's so ordinary to us and fresh eyes will help us see that but the way that you really feel it is by being the outsider right so when you are the one who goes to another place and you begin to realize oh the way that i think the way i've been sort of trained to see the world might not be just the way that things are, this actually is culturally situated. That doesn't mean there's no truth, of course, but it does mean that we all see the world through lenses that are usually locally oriented. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the world is given to us, right? Um, we did not create it. And so because of that, there is this overlap of experience. You know, We can communicate across cultures, even if we don't speak the same language, we can still share some apprehension of reality. But all of us look through lenses at the world. Uh, there's this really helpful book, uh, misreading the Bible with Western eyes that uh, kind of just shows, yeah, shows the way that we come to the text and even the things that we notice, like in the parable of the prodigal son, that there's a famine. Most Western people don't notice the fact that there's a famine because we have never experienced a famine before. Right. But in the majority world, that's one of the first things that they notice because food insecurity is pretty regular experience. So there are just things that uh, we are trained to know. And the only way that you have that, you're alerted to that is by visiting another culture, encountering another, a culturally other person. I think also it's one of the arguments for reading old books like C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, kind of writes about, because when you read old books, you are traveling through time. You're not bringing them. Alan Jacobs has this great point about breaking bread with the dead. You are not bringing them up here to, con to conform them to our standards of, of the way that things are. You are the one going to sit at their table and listening to their conversation. And so I think, you know, for those people who don't travel, it's an argument for reading church history. It's an argument, and not just church history, but reading primary texts, you know, of, of the church, primary, you know, things from other centuries 
where you realize, okay, like they were wrong about a lot of things, but maybe they can also show us what we are wrong about, or at least the way that we see the world that is maybe not as objective as we think it is. Would you agree that there's a, a an endemic chronological snobbery, to use C.S. Lewis's term, uh, among youth, at least, in our country? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think it probably always is the case for younger people that we're fascinated with what is novel. We're yeah. fascinated with, again, it's it's the meaning dimension, that which immediately resonates with us, that doesn't require us to do as much work to understand it. Uh, but I think it's exacerbated by the speed at which the digital world comes at us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you think about like the things that would have been major news stories, you know, even 30 years ago, it's like one happens after another every day, you know, and it's almost like because of how, how fast information comes at us, it's really hard for us to unplug from that yeah. and to do the hard work of cross-cultural or cross-temporal translation, you know what I mean? To actually go and visit another world of meaning. We are not normally predisposed to doing that, which is why I think, again, even that's that's a good thing about popular culture is a way that we can be immersed in a world of meaning. Now, the question is, though, are we anchored enough to something that would allow us to be immersed in another world of meaning without losing our sense of who we are, uh, especially as, as those who are called by Christ, which was the other thing I was going to say in answer to you, the initial question is yeah, please. Clifford Garretts is an anthropologist and he talks about humans as creatures that have, are hanging in webs, suspended in webs of meaning that we ourselves have spun. And I've, I've always really just really found that as an evocative image. But I also want to say that we are also suspended in webs not of our making the webs that have been woven for us by God, uh, who is a creator uh, and who's created this world and given us particular structures of creation that culture is a response to. So we make culture, we make meaning in response to a world that is is gifted to us by the creator so that we can't just say it's all, well, it's all just what you make of it. Yes, like we make things of the world, but but we also are caught up in strands of meaning uh, that we did not make, and that God has written himself into the story uh, through his covenantal action uh, towards Israel, and then most fundamentally in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that has created these additional strains of meaning that work through the entire web and transform everything. The goal is to have people so rooted in that gospel, even more than just the gospel, a whole Christian worldview of yeah. looking at what God has done throughout redemption history so that uh, we could be in a relationship with him and have a hope that looks towards renewal rather than evacuation. You know, I think that's very helpful as well for meaning. But uh, let's let's move on to power. Sure. Uh, this is something that I've noticed. I'm, uh, what am I, 43 right now. So like I've, I remember when people weren't so obsessed with power <laughs> from mm. a cultural point of view. Mm. And, uh, you know, like growing up for me, like that just wasn't a focus. Uh, but it's like we've fully entered a Nietzschean age where everyone is obsessed with power and yeah. how like politics in particular, everything is judged by like, how are you exerting power over this group? That's and right. does this uh, suffering minority have the power 
to stand against the majority and so on. Talk to us about power in the culture sure. because it is so it's so big, it's so uh, significant today. Yep. Yeah, this was the most difficult chapter to write of the book, and probably the one I'm least satisfied with. I've it's also the one I've gotten the most positive feedback about. You know, maybe just because people are like, "This is, it's helpful to have something that." even start the conversation about it. And the reason why it's so hard is precisely what you just articulated, that we are in a cultural moment where it's almost like you have two sides, one side that refuses to acknowledge power dynamics at all, and one side that have found a hammer and it's the only thing that, you know, it's like, and everything looks like a nail. So once we see power, it can become the only thing we see. And so the challenge, of course, is to acknowledge power dynamics exist without it taking over everything, you know, in the way that we look at culture. And in some ways, that's what I'm trying to do by having five lenses, you know, yeah. uh, it's not just power. Now, it's the second lens I talk about. I wanted to talk about it as as early as I could, mm -hmm. because it does matter. There, there is There is a power dimension to culture. You know, when you think about, for example, something like the Marvel movies, those movies are being made by a studio that owns much of the intellectual property of the stories that we are told. Uh, that's a power dimension. And so they, in some ways, get to constrict our imagination. You know, they, they get to constrain our imagination in, in particular ways, and it's not an even playing field. And so that's, that's something we have to acknowledge. And uh, there's been long strains of analysis that have discussed culture in this way. So for each chapter, what I'm also trying to do is to say there are various academic disciplines that specialize in this kind of analysis. So for the first lens, meaning cultural anthropology is sort of the, the academic discipline that works on this. For the second lens, it's critical theory. Right. And critical theory is so ubiquitous in the academy and has been, um, and I'm talking here about uh, the Frankfurt School, so the kind of second and third generation after Marx who were critical of Marx in many ways, but also carried his project forward. And the Frankfurt School says pop culture is, it's not religion that's the opiate of the people, it's pop culture. So it's mm -hmm. actually, it's its our consumption of culture and pop culture that, that keeps us from actually being able to make any changes, which I find that actually quite compelling. And so I was wanting to listen to this tradition of critical theory and at the same time say, this, we need more than just critical theory. We have various instruments at our disposal, and critical theory does a good job of diagnosing power disparity and power dynamics, but it doesn't do a great job of building anything on the other side of that. So it does a great job of tearing down, not a great job of, of building up, which is the reason why I wrote the next chapter on ethics, because ethics is more constructive. So yeah, the power dimension is sometimes we all know what we're against. What are we for? Like, what are we, how are we going to build a life together? Yeah. And it's not enough just to be able to like do iconoclasm. And so I talk about power in terms of iconoclasm, which obviously has a long theological tradition, but also has a, a pretty robust secular tradition as well. If you think about pulling things off their pedestals, you know, um, mm -hmm censorship, cancel culture, all, all of Very that. Very typical of, t of any article you might read in the news today. A statue of somebody who was found out that they were actually a, a terrible racist 300 years ago, 200 years ago. Now we got to tear it down. We got to cancel so-and-so because they made this remark 25 years ago when they were a teenager and now we can't have them on this. You know, you see this even in TV shows where like suddenly a character will like just disappear and you're like, yeah. 
what happened to that guy? I kind of liked him. It's yeah. like, well, he got canceled. So, yeah, yeah. this is iconoclasm's right here and now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I said we have theological traditions to talk about the legitimacy of iconoclasm and when it would be appropriate to. So I, I distinguish between there is an iconoclasm of cancellation and there, and then I say there's also an iconoclasm of complication. The iconoclasm of cancellation is sort of that replacement model, mm-hmm. right? Where so we feel like something is so destructive that we need to replace it. And then there's also an iconoclasm of complication where we say, okay, that's the story, but that's not the only story that we, we should tell about this, right? And so I, in some ways, I'm trying to do that iconoclasm of complication in the book by saying maybe power will weaken its hold on our imagination if we emplace it among all these other lenses so that we are still doing power analysis. We're not being blind to power in the ways that it might that, you know, culture is not just about meaning. It often is about power. Mm-hmm. And yet, as Christians, we don't believe that power is the deepest reality. Um, at least coercive power is not right. the deepest reality. You know, love is is deeper than power. And so uh, we would need more than just, yeah, I mean, Scripture does power critique. Scripture, do, the pro, the prophets, I mean, that's that's a big part of what they're mm-hmm. doing against Israel's leaders and, and kings and priests. But the prophets are also interested in building something is some sort of community uh, that is characterized by fidelity uh, to yeah 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 to fidelity and justice yeah uh really uh fascinating to think about iconoclasm and power biblically uh i would guess the uh the biggest iconoclast in the bible is king josiah he just went nuts man just breaking (laughs) stuff everywhere yeah um and you know the the chronicler whoever that was ezra or whoever it was just loves iconoclasm but uh at the same time it's not tear and this is this is a point you make very well it's not just tear everything down and then leave yourself in like despair that's right and that seems to be what we're doing as a society we're tearing everything down this guy's really actually terrible this lady is evil and you're left with no role models you see this in the marvel Mm -hmm. movies too like nobody anymore, and this might come back in uh, aesthetics a little bit, but like nobody anymore has a taste for a good superhero that's just mm. good to his or her core. We want mm. someone that's so deeply flawed yeah. and complicated, and you know we want to operate in all the grays. And, and nobody would allow for like the original Superman kind of character anymore because like we just don't have a taste for it. Like we want to see it differently now. It's so interesting to see these shifts in time and i think a lot of christians a lot of us if we're honest we do one of the two two things i mentioned before and and that you you have mentioned either we just say okay well i guess we were wrong before and this is the way it is or we say well that's just the world they don't know anything they're unbelievers they're mired in sin or you know if you're a calvinist bless your heart they're totally depraved and incapable of any righteousness whatsoever there's not really a much of a space for what you're doing here hmm. uh, in, in Christianity. There's not there's not like people saying, you know what, well, let's think about it. Let's exegete it. Let's consider it deeply. Scholars can easily get really in the weeds and like yeah. find all the antecedents. Then it's like, all right, well, now what? Okay, so mm-hmm. now you explained how we got here, but like, what are we, what are we supposed to do? So I think your, your book is really helpful in the sense of answering that question and uh, well, what would you what would you say to to like a, a church or a Christian community that was just like, well, how should we do power? How should we think about this in a way that's faithful to 
you know, God and the and the gospel and the Christian message? Yeah, I think a lot of it would depend on the nature of that community, perhaps even with respect to power. Uh, so, for example, if I was in a persecuted church scenario where you actually have the Christians being actively imprisoned, and the, the way I answer that question of how do we relate to power is maybe a little bit different than if I'm in a place where Christians are widespread. It's not strange to be a Christian, I guess, mm-hmm. is a way of saying it. Like here, where I live, you know, I think probably 70% of the people go to church on Sunday, you oh, know, wow. and so our relationship to power is different than in, so you sort of take those, those as the ends of the spectrum. So that's my disclaimer is just to say, yeah, a lot of it depends on context. But I would say, first of all, I think it's really important that we learn to discern what's going on in our, our own hearts. So I always say, look for self-justification and self-congratulation. And you see a lot of times that, and this is kind of getting into my ethics chapter in some ways, everybody wants to be on the right side of history. Everybody wants to have the moral high ground. And so a lot of times when we get in discussions of power, we're almost trying to compare ourselves. We're, we're almost trying to get on the right side of the line and say, well, I'm on the right side of this. I'm a good person. Right. And these people over here are not good people. And it really exempts us from the sort of critique that scripture wants to give to us, that there is none righteous and that we all are in need of being rescued from ourselves. And so I think that there, the first movement of discernment has to be a discernment of what's going on in our own hearts and in our own communities. Are we just trying to justify ourselves? Are we trying to congratulate ourselves by, you know, so much of what passes for ethics on social media is just congratulate self-congratulation. Branding, personal branding is a person who is has a reputation for righteousness, at least. And I think that that would be the first thing I would say when, when we talk about power is is putting our defensiveness to death long enough to do the work of discernment um, so that we can listen to people who have been crushed by power uh, or who perceive themselves to be crushed by power. Now, it's not the final movement, but, you know, James tells us that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Really hard to do that on Twitter, I think, (laughs) you know. And so we just have to have communities where we're able to actually, where we feel secure enough that we can do the long work, the long patient work of uh, self-examination. I think that certain mediums just don't work for it. Like I said, Twitter is not a great place to do this in any sort of a nuanced way. Now, I, I get the fact that there are some people who feel like they have no other voice and so they have to do it there. But you can't build a community on outrage. Uh, or maybe you can build a, you can build a mob, but you can't yeah, build you a can community. Yeah, you can build a mob. Yeah. And so I think that, that that would be the thing that I would say is that we always have to keep power, a, course of, a critique of course of power always has to go hand in hand with an account of creative power. So it's not just about what are we taking apart, but what are we trying to build together? And I think just from the perspective of sustainability, it's exhausting to always be resisting and critiquing and warring against something. It takes from us in a way that when we're trying to build a vital community of hospitality and and serve, which is what I take the New Testament to be calling us to do, it's expansive and, and, it, and it gives us it gives us space and a rootedness to be able to do this sort of gospel work that we're called to do. So uh, we're running a little short on time, and yeah. people want to know your thoughts in depth. Obviously, they can get the book. I'll leave it to you. Which which do you think 
you'd like to just briefly cover in uh, a very short manner, uh, morality or aesthetics? What, what, what do you think? <laughs> I, uh, let me see if I can talk about both of them real quick. So, okay, uh, yeah, talk about both, please. You said morality or aesthetics yeah, or religion? Or, uh, oh, wait, yeah, there's religion. <laughs> yeah, religion, there's five. Okay, so let me see if I can hit the last three. Yeah. So, um, Ethics, I've talked about quite a bit already. It's that sense of constructing, like what is the community we're building together? And I just note that every community is a moral community in some sense, meaning that we all have the sense of what's acceptable behavior within that community to belong to the community. So the creating of rules, community standards, everyone does that. That's a human thing. And it's not necessarily bad. What we need to have an account of is, is what happens when somebody fails our standards our community standards, and how do we relate to people on the other side of the line. So the creating of boundaries is not bad. Uh, it's sort of how do we treat failure and how do we respond to those on the other side? So Jesus mm -hmm. says, love your enemies, right? So these are people who are obviously on the other side of the line. And so that dimension is the dimension in which culture always leads us to create a community that has a moral edge, mm -hmm. uh, a sense that certain people are approved and certain people are not approved. Um, for various reasons. And then this is this huge space for the gospel uh, of justification by faith. That's the chapter on ethics, um, which is, again, justification is the fuel for, for justice. Uh, and then the religion chapter is about how culture is a source of transcendence. So not just religious transcendence in the classical sense of, you know, you're a Hindu, you're a Muslim, but the sort of transcendence that you feel if you go to a sports game and 70,000 fans feel united in, in this electric kind of atmosphere yeah. that you feel like pulled out of you, you know, it's almost like a religious experience. Mm -hmm. and that Or a the concert. That's right, a concert, any kind of thing like that that pulls you away from your self-interest and makes you like, I'm part of something larger than myself is religious. And then there's other aspects to it as well. But then asking the question of, well, but these feelings will awaken something that they can't fulfill. And if we try to make a sport, you know, music group fulfill the thing it's awakened, mm -hmm. it will fail us. It'll become an idol. And when an idol is trivial, it leads to sort of an emptiness and meaning. When an idol is significant, like if I idolize my race, for example, then that can actually become really destructive to other people as well. Kind of gets into the way that religion has been used to legitimize all sorts of evil. And so revelation now comes in to critique religion. And then the final chapter is about aesthetics. And aesthetics is whatever it is in culture that elicits our delight and awakens our desire and directs it in particular ways. So what do you find beautiful? What do you find attractive? So this is in some ways the return of the meaning dimension, but now inflecting it in a particularly aesthetic way, which is it's, it's this deeply felt sense that some things are worth pursuing, as I say in the book, just for the heaven of it, you know, just for the joy of doing it. So if I go to a Marvel movie with my kids, there is some aspect, okay, Dis is Disney discipling me? But there's also like this aesthetic dimension of, of the delight that I have with my children watching a movie together that is part of culture. And so there ought to be things that we are making just because of the joy of using our God-given creativity now, of course, we're fallen, and so we take our creativity and we push it in all sorts of destructive ways, which is why aesthetics as well needs to be redeemed and, and redirected. Our desires need to be redirected through the gospel. So that's the way that I sort of try to, to bring those five things together and to say any kind of cultural artifact you have, 
you can deploy one of these five or, or hopefully more than one uh, of these five levels of cultural analysis. Right. Um, and there are various disciplines that specialize in them, but no one discipline gets to say, this is what this thing is because we need to have a thick description. And then theology kind of comes in as the host at the table that's making sure that everybody gets to talk and then ultimately reminds us that God is the most important guest at the table. That perspective takes up all the rest and integrates them and, and critiques them and completes them. Very good. Dr. Justin Bailey, thanks for joining me today. The book is called Interpreting Your World. And uh, let me ask you this. How can people learn more about you or uh, get access to your your books and your other work? Yeah, I have a website, P. Justin, letter P as in pastor or professor, justin.com. And then P. Justin.com? P. Justin.com. Hey, that's great. <laughs> Super yeah. short. Yeah. And then my books are on wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all sorts of places like that. Very good. Well, thanks yeah. for joining me today. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sean. Good talking to you. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Hope you enjoyed that. It certainly is an important subject, how we engage with our culture, how we can remain sensitive to how the culture is affecting us and conscious of it so that we can critically allow into our hearts those elements that are good for us and reject those that are not, while at the same time recognizing the motivations and longings of the culture that will be very helpful in sharing the gospel, sharing how our faith in Christianity meets those needs that people feel so much today. If you'd like to leave any feedback or questions or thoughts, come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 480, Interpreting Your World, and leave a comment there. On another note, we got a new review. Someone by the name of Rush19 Tower titled their review, Preach the Good News of the Kingdom, and said, This is an excellent source for alternative views of the biblical scriptures. Don't be scared. The truth has nothing to fear. I'm not afraid of my Bible anymore. Let God say what he has said. Blessings in Jesus the Messiah. Well, thanks for that review. If uh, you've been a longtime listener to Restitutio, why not write a review? You can do that through Apple Podcasts, and it really does help others find the show. But I really appreciate what this person said here in the sense of, I'm not afraid of my Bible anymore. Isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that any Christian could be afraid of his or her Bible? Isn't that just weird? Isn't that such a strange thought? And yet it's true. If you have a doctrinal package that's that's well-defined, then the Bible will threaten you at times to make you feel uncomfortable. So I guess there's a few different ways to respond to that. One is to just do some research and firm up your convictions by looking at what the quote-unquote experts say about this or that. And another is to look at what the other options are. And this is what nobody does. It's, it's honestly such a passion of mine because it is so unheard of. But what we don't do is... Uh, say, for example, you're reading the scriptures and you believe that the moment you die, you go to heaven. And you read a text that says that in Sheol, in the realm of the dead, no one praises God. And you say to yourself, well, 
I, can't, I don't know what to say about that because obviously in the realm of the dead, people are praising God because the dead are actually in heaven. Is this just talking about their bodies? And then you read other verses that talk about the person going to Sheol, not just their body going to Sheol. So you start to question it, and what you do is you look up people from your own perspective and their explanations of these verses. What you don't do is look at what the other options are, and there's not even a space, there's not even a place online that sort of information is readily accessible. Like, what are, what are the three or four options for the intermediate state? What are they? People don't know. So as a result of that, they don't have the ability to check the other options. And I think that's really an important way forward for making our Bibles feel less threatening, is to find out how other Christians put together these different scriptures and which side has fewer difficult verses, and boom, you're right in the process of restorationism. This is what a restorationist does. This is the whole point of restorationism, is to compare different views to scriptures, see which one is more likely to be correct, to look at church history as well, if you're able to do that, because if you can date the beginning of an idea, and if it begins, let's say, any time after the apostles, then it's just it's just an optional idea. It's not, it can't be held with a clenched fist. It's, it's just sort of like, okay, well, that might be a good way to look at it, but it certainly isn't apostolic. It isn't New Testament, so we're not going to make a big deal of this particular theory of putting things together. And so this is really what we're trying to do here, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we want to live out our faith today. So sometimes restorationists do tend to get stuck in the past and stuck in issues of Greco-Roman culture or New Testament theology or church history or philology, if they're really into parsing the words, the Greek words of the New Testament, for example, or the Hebrew words, or maybe they get into Coptic or, or Aramaic, and all that's great. I'm a nerd. I love all that stuff. But there's also the other side of the equation. Restoring authentic Christianity is our slogan. Restoring authentic Christianity and living it out today. And so if you have, let's say you've done it, you've perfected an understanding of apostolic Christianity. You've gotten it all down. You have your reasons why, and you're confident in that. You've looked at other options. You've discussed with Christians who disagree with you, and you're fully confident. First of all, that's amazing. Second of all, it does you no good. You're just, uh, you know, like the Apostle Paul says, a clanging gong or just a bunch of noise if you don't have love, if you don't actually live it out in your life. And uh, when it comes to living it out in our real lives, in our real world, understanding the culture, understanding issues about science, understanding philosophical categories or sociological and other religions even is, is really important, especially the, the dominant religion in what, wherever it is you live. This is all relevant as well for the restorationists because we're not just looking at restoring a museum piece, we're also looking to use it in real life. And in order to use it in real life, the Great Commission is that we would share this message with others, that we would share the gospel of the kingdom and the cross with people around us. And if we can't in any way communicate with them because we are completely ignorant of their culture, completely ignorant of their metaphors, of their heart's longings, and we pitch the gospel in a way that works for us, 
but is radically out of tune with how they're thinking, then it will just be less effective. I don't want to be less effective. I want to be more effective and faithful to the calling of Jesus that he gave the church when he left. So those are some thoughts on what we're doing here. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I did want to mention that I am planning on putting out the first episode of my church history class that I just started next week, and that is going to introduce first century church history. We're going to look at Jesus and the apostles a little bit, but also some other events not recorded in the New Testament that are very significant for understanding how Christianity developed in that first generation after Christ. So stay tuned for that. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.